We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. When I first read this book, I loved Tom Bombadil because he was very silly and he sang silly songs. But rereading it, I had a much deeper appreciation for the way how Tom Bombadil serves as that first exhibition of the power of music and what impact it can have. When he saves Mary and Pippin from the old willow tree, he says, Old Man Willow, not worse than that, eh? That can soon be mended. I know the tune for him. Old Grey Willow Man, I'll freeze his marrow cold if he don't behave himself. I'll sing his roots off. I'll sing a wind up and blow leaf and branch away. So it's evoking this power of music to have some control over the world around you. And you see other snippets of that where, like, a black writer will be about to get... Frodo, but then some elves will be singing in the forest and the Black Rider will shrink away. Anyway, I don't want, yeah, Tom Bombadil, the best character. No one can possibly disagree with that statement. Okay, so there are a number <laughs> of arguments for Tom Bombadil, one of which you just very well argued. There's also the argument that, like, sorry, I mean, he's shown to be, like, super old. He's, like, older than the elves old. He is old as fuck. He was at the beginning of creation or something like that. Right. And so like his little area is like the last bastion of like the old world that's basically clinging on after him, the elves and stuff. So like this is their last goodbye to that, if that makes sense, right before they leave the Shire. Um, And people have argued about it certainly as like a turning point in the narrative that you get this and they have to leave it behind this last bit of like true true real goodness there's a lot that can be argued about him as a character that's representing like older myths and stuff like as the sort of green man lots of people have made lots of arguments (laughs) but (laughs) i would argue it's not executed well enough to really like drive any of those points fully home. Was I a worthy adversary? No. But you put on a hell of a show. I think there's something really interesting about the fact that they go from Tom Bombadil into the Barrows and like that contrast of life and sort of the beginnings of life and then like death is certainly... Something that could have, there could have been a lot done with. But I think that these themes aren't really drawn out enough to be satisfying. Like they're, they just kind of like sit there and like you can pick them up and, and make them into things. Um, but ultimately, like the time that Frodo and company spend in the house, I feel like doesn't, they don't gain a lot or a new insight or anything. You don't see them really like thinking about it in an interesting way. Like I I don't feel like there's a lot of benefit that we see. What we see is actually for some reason this moment that should be this this bastion of goodness and of everything is the moment where yeah, Frodo first puts on the ring. 
the ring has no influence over Tom Bombadil, but like the sight of the ring having no influence over him in some ways goads Frodo to put the ring on for the very first time. I also wish there could be more done with that because it feels weird that this moment that should be of so much significance, Frodo's first moment of putting on the ring, it's downplayed as something, the silly little moment. Mm-hmm. And maybe that too is sort of a goodbye to the silliness with which Bilbo used the ring for much of The Hobbit and even the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring. But we don't really get necessarily consequences of that either. So I don't know. I'm I'm very... I, I know all the arguments. I fully understand their arguments for Tom Bombadil. And he didn't bother me as much as he did when I was a kid. But I still think that that's time on the page that's not fully utilized. And Tolkien's normally so good about maxing out his usage of time that it feels like the days that they spend there. If it had just been like they, he saved them, they spent maybe one night together, and then they headed on, that would be something smaller. But like they stay there an extra day, and I'm not sure what we get out of that. These are fair points. I disagree completely. But <laughs> I think, I mean, I think there there's a couple parts to it. Uh, and this is kind of tied to the beginning in the Shire, where in the Shire, these characters spend a really long time waiting for things to happen. Like, like you said, there's a nine year period where Gandalf doesn't show up. And then when they finally figure out what the ring is, they wait an entire season until they actually leave. And there's this comment that Frodo makes while there. Because I remember reading that as a kid being like, this is so silly. This is so dumb. Why are they spending so much time in the Shire? Let's go on an adventure. But this time around, as a tired old man, I really resonated with that feeling of not wanting to leave. No, everything out there is going to be horrible. Just stay in the Shire. I know of a place where you never get harmed. A magical place with magical charms. Indoors, indoors, indoors. In that sense, spending an extra day with Tom Bombadil sort of serves as that last hurrah of like, this is when we're really leaving the Shire behind for good. But I also think that... We learn a lot about the character of the ring itself. We're getting hints of this tempting power of the ring where Frodo feels drawn to put the ring on, even though the desire, he says later, is coming outside of him. It's not coming from him, but there's this desire that's being projected onto him to put the ring on. And then you get this moment with Tom Bombadil where you see... You, you learn something very important, I think, about the ring itself when he puts it on and it has no effect because we're told repeatedly that Tom is his own master, that he has a resolute heart and that he can't be swayed or influenced because he is his, he is his own person. And that's where we learn where the power of the ring lies in its ability to dominate another person's will. And so when we see somebody who can't be dominated, whose will is so steadfast and sure that the ring literally has no effect on him, I think it's a very powerful moment of 
how it can be combated and it gives us a sense of who perhaps will be most susceptible to the ring itself because we see Frodo put the ring on for the first time and you're right there is like a dismissive tone because Tom actually looks straight at him apparently can see him completely fine and says just take the ring off you goose (laughs) and it's like oh it's really weirdly anticlimactic because it almost undermines the temptation of the ring itself. I think that's the point. It's it's supposed to make the ring feel less powerful because we're in a place where this person's will is just so sure that the ring has no effect here. There's a really interesting scene where they go to sleep, I think the first night, and they all have nightmares. Everyone except Sam, who sleeps like a log. And that's going to be very important later in the story. I think it might be until Return of the King. I won't spoil anything. But that (laughs) becomes very, very important for understanding the character of Sam later on. Yeah, I I just want to put a pin in the Sam thing for a sec. But um, sure, I want to say that I get what you're saying about the ring. And I feel like if that had happened later, I might be actually more okay with it. I think this is not the point in the story where we need the power of the ring undermined, especially not if you've read The Hobbit. I mean, part of it is you're coming in from The Hobbit with this view of this ring as a very useful tool, but certainly not anything ominous. So you're coming in, the ring's just been chilling with Bilbo in the Shire, and you get the freaky moment with Bilbo, but he's had it for like 60, 70 years. Yeah. It's been a long time. And and you're getting the impression that the ring is growing more powerful because, like, evil itself is sort of waking back up. But I don't think this is the moment coming out of the Shire when we need the ring to seem less powerful. I think this is the moment where we need to see the ring be more powerful and be more of a threat. This is when you're building suspense. I think, you know, if if this had happened in Lothlorien, say, that could could have been a little something like, oh, there is hope. This is the point in the story at which we need hope and which we need to see someone who cannot be broken by the ring. But in terms of pacing, having this be the moment in which the ring is undermined and Frodo putting on the ring is undermined, it doesn't feel like this is the right moment for that to be happening. It feels like going forward, especially because, like, yes, will in regards to the ring is a really important concept. And we hear about it fairly early on that Frodo is able to deal with the evil of it surprisingly well, but <laughs> you don't necessarily get the payoff for this it being introduced this early. You certainly get the idea that like will is important going forward, but like spoilers for the next two books. It's not like Frodo is able to at some point be like, I'm my own and my will cannot be controlled <laughs> and this ring has no hold on me. Uh-huh. So we're given the impression that, like, Tom Bobadil, like, honestly, my impression is, like, yes, sure, his will. He's completely his own. But also Tom Bobadil is just, like, this ancient (laughs) creature, like, Mm -hmm. that is somehow, like, beyond this ring from, like, a magical level. I don't get the idea that any old person could do this. So (laughs) it's just this hard thing where I feel like pacing-wise, it's off. I certainly don't mind the little break after they've had their first adventures, but I feel like it just completely collapses the tension. And then I also just like, I love the scene with the Barrow. I think them getting taken into the Barrow is so cool and having that be Frodo's like sort of 
first moment of real bravery is really great. And then it's like totally undercut because they call on, <laughs> he calls on Tom Bombadil and Tom Bombadil comes and he's like, run around naked. <laughs> That's, this is just not what I, the tonal whiplash is, is maybe the best way of describing it. I feel like the entire Tom Bombadil section just gives me tonal whiplash. The dreams, the dreams are really cool. And again, we could do a whole thing on dreams, but like the, the tone, it just goes back and forth and back and forth before it finally steadies out after this. And I don't see that tonal whiplash, I really, in any other part of this, this book, except where Tom Bombadil's around. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to say the scene in the Barrows where all the hobbits run around naked. Clearly, Tolkien was just foreshadowing the summer of love and hippies <laughs> taking over. So I, I, I think we have to give him credit for that. Joking aside. I mean, I get, I get what you're saying. I do think there are some pacing issues that are partly a product of the fact that he wrote Lord of the Rings as one single book. And then they're like, no, we have to break this up into three books. The pacing is kind of funky a little bit because it's not until, at least in my version, like 250 some pages in that the actual <laughs> Fellowship of the Ring, and this book is like 400 pages, but almost three quarters of the way in that the Fellowship of the Ring is actually formed, which, of course, if you just treat this as one 1200 page long book, that'd be totally fine. But... Uh, in this book, it's just weird. And then there's also pacing that like Aragorn has completely already accepted that he is <sighs> the king. Yeah, there's no tension there. So the, I think the movies did like a very good job of adapting yes. that and, and adding some character tension to him. Yes, like the most tension we get with him is he's like, I want to go to Gondor, but Gandalf's dead. So I feel like I have to stick with Frodo. Which, I mean, to be fair, that that does offer a fair bit of tension because you don't know what they're going to ultimately decide and how it's going to work out. Well, we know how it's going to work out. But <laughs> yes. theoretically, reading this for the first time, we did not know. So yeah, I, I see your point that the scene with Tom Bombadil probably comes too early in the book to really give it that vivacity that it needs that sense of life of of being able to have a break at the same time i also think that it offers a way for us to look backwards and be like man i wish we could just have tom bombadil handling the ring he he had such an easy time when we have freaking frodo being tempted to put it on and we have freaking galadriel Going, you know, mad with power for a second there. And then Boromir going mad with power. I think it's almost like a second Shire in that sense of like looking back and saying, I want to go back there where things were nice and the ring had no power over anybody and we didn't even have to worry about it doing anything to us. That's to, to me, to me, it's a very powerful moment. And again, maybe this is just me like feeling tired from the last four years and especially this year in a particular and just having this idea of going somewhere where you can just feel all anxiety just fall off your body. And so I have to acknowledge I, that I, bias <laughs> as well in I my guess, read. I get that more from Rivendell. Like I know mm -hmm. there is... Obviously, the ring still has power in Rivendell, and you see Bilbo still be tempted there. But, like, 
we're literally described the months that they're just hanging around in Rivendell for no reason. All of the anxiety and worries falling falling off the hobbits because like it's very much this house of healing and caring for people. I, I just get so much more of that feeling from Rivendell and I think it comes at some, so much of a better point in the story for that feeling to be happening, you know, the midway point, essentially. But then, I, I'm not sure, like, for instance, <laughs> the hobbits are like, I wish I could just go back to Rivendell. Like, you hear them say that. There's not, it doesn't carry forward as much the nostalgia for Tom Bombadil. I really feel like it, it has so much potential in so many ways, and it's just not either in its proper space to be utilized or just not written in a way that fully punches through those points. And so, it, it I, yeah, I can't help feeling like it's a little bit wasted as is. But I understand you have I, you have great affection, and there are many people that do, including my father. So I respect <laughs> the Tom Bombadilites. Uh-huh. I just think you're all wrong. So Oh, <laughs> there's the ticket. Oh, but Tom, do we want to talk about... Other characters, we sort of talked about Aragorn a little bit, who I agree is is better done in the movies. Not the least of which because Viggo Mortensen does a spectacular job. Oh my god, he's a dream! <sighs> Break out the fans, ladies and gentlemen. Really, could anyone else have played Aragorn? No. No, the answer is no. The answer is, in fact, no. And I'll, I'll say, while on this note of perfect casting, Galadriel was so perfectly cast in the movie. Look around the room, I can tell the jewel of the most beautiful girl in the room. Kate Blanchett just has a feeling of timelessness about her. But uh, enough of this. We must focus on the book. <laughs> yes. I put a pin in Sam. Do we want to talk about Sam? Oh, Sam is so cool. Let's talk about Sam. Do you want to start? Yeah, I, I think that there were a number of interesting things for me with Sam in this book. Partially because, um, I guess spoilers for our, like, impromptu podcast at some point that we'll post about the actual movies. <laughs> but, like, one of the things I noticed on my most recent rewatch was, like, I was a little uncomfortable with Sam as, like, a servant figure. Mm -hmm. um, and that certainly carried over in the beginning of this book. Um, the quote that you said earlier about, you know, Sam popping up like a, a dog, essentially, yes, about to be yeah. taken for a walk. And some of the implications of like, Sam is moving to care for Frodo in his new house because a master needs his servant. Indeed. And, and some of the commentary about class, like Sam is clearly of a lower class than the other hobbits. And there's some commentary of people being surprised that he, like, knows how to, like, read and write and shit. Yeah. So some of that was really uncomfortable in the beginning of this book. But something I was so pleased by, actually, was as the journey goes on, more and more people realizing just how smart and capable Sam is. Like, Sam just impromptu remembering a piece of poetry or coming up with a piece of poetry or a good plan and really, like... Getting to see him grow and like strength and also just like how other people are perceiving him was so lovely. Also just seeing him and Frodo, I think their bond become closer. Sam is in a lot more scenes with Frodo in this than he is in the movies. Like, I mean, obviously the scene with Gladriel being sort of the biggest one. It's nice to like see them as they as it goes on, Frodo begin to depend more and more on Sam. And see them really bond. You don't necessarily get the impression they were especially close friends before this. 
Um, which I think the movie tries to give you that impression. I've never met this man in my life. He's my brother. Adopted. But they really become close and you really see that bond form. And I thought that was just absolutely lovely. Ugh. Sam, he is just so freaking steadfast too as a character. And you're right. It's almost like what happens with Bilbo in The Hobbit where as a character he grows and you start to recognize him as so much more able than you think initially at the start of the book he is the one that is complaining the most he's the one that's kind of most afraid of venturing out of the shire he's very uncomfortable but just despite all that he just sticks with it because he's uh he's team frodo all the way but you see sort of that get tested and pushed and sometimes in cute comical ways, like there's <laughs> there's the moment with Bill the Pony where they have to send him back. And Sam is legitimately heartbroken over this, this choice that he's been given of either having to choose to go back with Bill or stick with Frodo. It really did feel like he had to struggle to make that decision. <laughs> um, but by the end of the book, when they're having their discussion the fellowship sans frodo and as they find out boromir uh, when they're mm -hmm. having their discussion about what to do sam gives basically this long character study of frodo that is just on the mark perfectly mm -hmm. sam just knows who frodo is by this point and he's clearly the one that's most capable of understanding frodo so at the end when he figures out everyone's literally everyone has lost their minds and they're just running in every single direction having no fucking clue what they're doing and <laughs> sam's the only one who stops and actually uses his freaking head to think okay what would frodo actually do right now and oh man the the end of this book made me so freaking teary-eyed because it's just like Frodo, you know, he's got this conviction. He's going by himself and he's making every point. He's pushed the boat out. He's telling Sam to go away. And Sam is like, no, I am sticking with you no matter what. There's that great line that he has that. Let me see if I can find it. But there are so many great lines. I'm out there. Which one are you talking about? The one where he's like, Frodo's like, I'm going to Mordor. I'm and going to Sam's Mordor. Like, <laughs> I know, I know that. that well enough, Mr. Frodo. Of course you are. And I'm coming with you. You know, and then he, I he... actually liked the the lines after that where mm. Frodo's like, no. And then Sam's like, I'm coming too, or neither of us isn't going. I'll knock holes in all the boats first. Ah. And that, <laughs> uh, that moment's great because then it describes how Frodo actually laughed. A sudden warmth yes. and gladness touched his heart. And it describes how, like, Literally, Frodo has just been betrayed, essentially, by the Fellowship. The Fellowship is broken at this point. He's been betrayed by Boromir. He's been attacked by Boromir. This is everything at its worst. And even in the worst of moments, Sam is able to make Frodo laugh. Yeah. And it's like... Friendship! Friendship is magic! It's just such a beautiful character moment for these two characters and how far they've grown. And it's very subtle because it's like it's almost all kind of happening on the side because, again, we're running into the prompt that there are nine people here. 
And then Mm -hmm. throughout their adventures, they're interacting with more people who become major characters in those segments. So you have a lot of people. Some people kind of get lost. I feel like Mary and Pippin especially get lost in the shuffle in this book. I I noticed Mary. Pippin at least gets a number of like really funny lines and you get a feel for his like impulsivity. Yeah. Mary, you lose. I think he's the most neglected member of the fellowship. Yeah. And then there, there are parts where like, Gimli's forgotten, Legolas is forgotten, Boromir is kind of forgotten. There's hints every now and then, but it's not until his major monologue at the end where you actually see his heart exposed. So there, there is that issue again in this book. But I think it works really well with the character of Sam because all these moments of you see him growing, it's not the book is not explicitly telling you. It's not spending so much time. It's all happening in the background and you pick up enough pieces that unconsciously you're just holding them in the back of your head. So when this moment happens, it all makes sense because you've been growing with this character regardless if you even realized it or not. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a lot more powerful. You just get this very big dramatic moment at the end where Sam is the god (laughs) hero of the story. And he, oh man, he pulls through. It's just so lovely. And it's the same thing with like the the Mirror of Galadriel, where he has that temptation of going back to the Shire, but he still chooses to stick with Frodo. And so it all builds up into this magical moment of friendship. Yeah. It's so wonderful. I think there's actually, I mean... Not saying one version is better or worse, but like, I do like how there's a lot of character happening in the background of this story. I Mm -hmm. don't think there's a lot of room in the foreground for it, (laughs) but like, there's a number of relationships that kind of happen in the background. Um, I wish we got a little bit more on Legolas and Gimli, like, and how exactly that happened. Although I think that you definitely see like Gimli accepting sort of the elves and being accepted by them Mm -hmm. seems like it goes a long way with Legolas. Even Aragorn and Boromir's background friendship is kind of cute. You kind of always see them doing things together after their initial sort of tussle. And, like, I don't think it can be forgotten that I think Boromir in this version, like, really wants Aragorn to come to Gondor. Like, he wants Aragorn to come back, and Aragorn's feeling that he is going to come back. And so there is this sort of unity between the two of them that is happening, yeah, in the background of the story that I think is, it'll be interesting to see how um, Boromir's death plays out beginning of next book, since that's obviously, (laughs) their relationship is very different in this version. And even Aragorn and Gandalf's friendship, which like has been going on, you get the sense of how long they've known each other and how much they've depended on each other through the years for various things. And actually, for that matter, Aragorn, I'm just going to go on an Aragorn kick. Uh, Aragorn's relationship with Arwen, which again is Mm. never like explicitly put out there. But you get the feeling that there's someone he's missing and longing for. And that's very much like something you know, which will make it more powerful when that's like fully revealed later on, I think. Tolkien will never be the best character writer in the world. But I really felt like this, this book does a good job of like, Yes, having nine different people, and for the most part, like, you pretty much understand some basic things about all of them and get to see some degree of emotion or growth, with the very sad exception of Mary, yeah, who, like, you see very little of. 
Yeah. I'm so depressed because I love Mary. How could you do this to me? I'm sure we'll be seeing more of him in the next book. But well, I do yes. I do want to talk about Boromir because I do think that I think this sort of technique of writing characters, it's you're not going to make the most compelling characters, but I do think it lends itself to very compelling moments. Mm-hmm. You know, that moment at the end where Boromir has betrayed Frodo and he's going off on this rant about his vision of what he sees will happen. He will get the ring. All men will rally to him. He will defeat Mordor. And then he, Boromir, will become king. And I think that's important to note that throughout this book, when Aragorn and Boromir interact, as you said, Boromir wants Aragorn to come back. He might be a little hesitant about whether Aragorn can really fulfill this prophecy, I guess, of the return of the king. But it's very clear that Boromir wants Aragorn in Gondor. And so Mm -hmm. when that moment comes where Boromir proclaims he will be king if he has the ring, that's when you know something is terribly wrong. And And I feel that's where Boromir's tragedy is just all the more devastating because it's not him and he he's instantly remorseful for his actions and you just see i don't know it's a really powerful moment of like yeah seeing how the ring takes the best qualities of people and just corrupts them for its own purpose and even within that conversation so he starts off you know more reasonable and one of his opening big paragraphs of, of talking he says you know the ring is a gift Uh, It's mad not to use it. And what could not a warrior do in this hour, a great leader? What could not Aragorn do? Mm. Or if he refuses, why not Boromir? And then he goes on and, and, you know, devolves into that ranting speech about how he's going to be king. But it's interesting to see that even in this moment where he's succumbing to the temptation, like it's slowly stripping him away from him. Like he starts off with, Yeah, still thinking about Aragorn as his king that he wants to follow, that he has been following for this quest. And then it it slowly strips that away from him. And we get to this, you know, very wild, almost manic feeling. Like I imagine him very manic fantasy of, you know, himself as king over all of men. And yeah, it's a very, very creepy, powerful scene. I mean, there's this moment where he, uh, he laid his hand on the hobbit's shoulder in friendly fashion, but Frodo felt the hand trembling with suppressed excitement. Uh, he stepped quickly away and eyed with alarm the tall man, nearly twice his height and many times his match in strength. And yeah, this creeping dread, like, you know, your friend turned stranger. Yeah, it's like that moment in the Shire when when he realizes the Shire is not safe anymore. It's the same thing when he realizes that his companion is no longer safe to him yeah his companion's now a danger and it's great because this moment with boromir is foreshadowed with gandalf's own tragic friendship with saruman where saruman i think by the time we see saruman in this book he he has gone full villain but there is this implied history where at some point saruman came up with this plan to take the ring for himself for a good reason to destroy Sauron and bring peace and order to the world. 
But the version we saw is like the final corrupted version of that where he is so lost, so caught up in his vision of the world that he can't even see Gandalf as his friend. He can't even see Radagast. Uh, Radagast makes an appearance. Mm -hmm. Saruman just dismisses them as fools. That's crazy talk. Who would say Gandalf is a freaking fool? So it's these powerful moments of betrayal. And you just you feel that tragedy in the end of this book where since you've had more time to be with Boromir and understand him, because I, I think of all the characters in the Fellowship, he's the one who's most antagonistic in the sense that he's the, he's the one always sort of advocating for a different approach. Uh, you mm -hmm. saw that at the very beginning with the Council of Elrond. But nonetheless, he, he always makes a point that he is resolute. He will stick with the Fellowship no matter what. He is there to help the hobbits through the snow. Yeah, they carry them on their backs. Yeah, it's very cute. There, You get a sense that like Boromir is a good, good person who just wants to save his home. Just like Gimli, just like Legolas, just like the hobbits, just like Aragorn. You see a good man torn down by this corrupting force and it's tragic and you just... Oh, how you just wish you could go back to Tom Bombadil's home and not be corrupted, right? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I'm being antagonistic myself. Mm-hmm. No It's just so powerful and awful to watch. And you just... But at the same time, you get a sense of, like, this is what makes Frodo extraordinary, that even though he's carried the ring... More or less, he's still able to fight off that corrupting force up to this point. Spoiler alert, he doesn't the entire time. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, uh, to pivot and talk about Frodo, like Frodo is a is a strong little hobbit in multiple ways. Like he has, he's so brave. He really shows that bravery like in the Barrows mm -hmm. and trying to fight get back <laughs> against the Black Riders when they come for him on Weathertop. I think very much like people rag on Frodo in the movies for being very like delicate. Yeah. I mean, Lindsay Ellis's reviews of the movies have this epic like uh, trip count for Frodo <laughs> at the end of each video, which is great because he really does fall so much in the movies. But like here, you very much see him as like of the four hobbits in terms of like who's going to come at you with a sword. It's probably going to be Frodo. Yeah. Even when he gets, like, uh, struck in Moria, he has got the Mithril, obviously, which helps him out quite a bit. But even with that, he, like, basically gets crushed between the wall and, like, a spear and has, like, the, the chain mail has, like, some of the loops have, like, cut into his skin. Like, he's very hardy about going through that. Like, he's a strong little hobbit. And the way that he's able to, yeah, persevere... And even though, like, yes, there are moments of time where his spirits get low, and I think you very much see from the beginning that he, this quest is not one that has ever been fun for him. <laughs> He's not looking forward to telling tales about it when he gets back to Bilbo, you know? Like, Bilbo's always like, come back soon and we can write your book. And that's not, you see the difference, I think, between him and Bilbo there, whereas Bilbo's turned everything into this story, into this song. And that's not, not what's going on with Frodo. Yeah. There's also this interesting point at the beginning where 
Gandalf and Frodo are talking about Gollum, and Frodo makes this point about how he wishes that that Bilbo had just killed Gollum because Gollum is a gross, nasty creature. And Gandalf has that famous line about how it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand, pity and mercy. And in fact, mm-hmm. it was because Bilbo first used the ring on the basis of pity that the corrupting force of the ring was in some ways limited. I think you can also read into it that that Bilbo is a good person himself and there's something good and hearty about the Hobbit folk that allow them to resist this temptation in a way that clearly even men and even wizards and even elves can't resist it. It's really telling about the character of Hobbits, you know? I mean, this book opens with with a prologue concerning (laughs) Hobbits. It's a delightful look into the society of hobbits and what they are like as people. And you just get that feeling, this inherent desire of hobbits to just want peace and love and good tilled earth. That carries through and that allows Frodo to be as strong as he is up to this point to ultimately just imagine having to make that decision I'm going to go off to Mordor by myself. God, let's give Frodo some credit here. That That is a freaking heroic moment. And I think it kind of gets lost because Sam ultimately joins him. But Frodo is about to make this huge, huge sacrifice knowing that he's leaving behind everything and he is probably going to die. There's no way he's going to survive by himself. But he recognizes it is better for him to go alone than to risk, not only risk the lives of his companions, but also risk having them be turned by the ring. Like he accepts it as his own burden. Going back to that line from Gandalf, you know, it's about choosing what we do with the time that's given to us. Frodo I mean, is yeah, good. Even, even in the beginning, the fact that he sells his house. Yes. Like, this is a kind of like, you know, probably not appreciated enough moment and certainly not something that happens in the movies, but like he goes into this and sells his house. He knows, he knows from the beginning he can never come home. And and we see that uh, again, foreshadowed um, when he's looking in the mirror of Gladriel, because we see the ship sailing West that like Frodo will be on in the future. Obviously that's, that hasn't been set in stone. It's very much like we are told the future is up in the air, but like, it's already there in his future that he can never truly go home. But he understands that from the very beginning, which I think is makes him all the braver to go on this and know that, yeah, there's no chance of ever really returning. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> uh, Frodo. We'll just sigh. The next 30 minutes, we'll just <laughs> sigh. Frodo. <sighs> As opposed to Mary and Pippin, who had no <laughs> idea what the f*** they were getting into. You shall be the fellowship of the ring. Right. Where are we going? I love them. But, like, they really had no f***ing clue. Yeah, they they just went along because they're best friends with Frodo. And so they're good, but they also have that moment of realizing, oh, this is actually a, a lot worse than I thought it was going to be. And <laughs> it's very yep. funny. 
Well, and I think there's even the moment they come across the trolls from The Hobbit. I think after after Frodo's gotten stabbed. Yeah. And I think one of them, either Pippin or Merry, we were told that they had never actually believed that story was real, even though right. they'd heard it multiple times. And there's a, definitely a naivete about them that even Sam, I don't think, really fully possesses. Sam is the one who spent a lot of time with Bilbo hearing his stories and was enchanted by his stories of the elves. And I think bought into more of that, if that makes sense. Pippin and Mary, they're just like, they had no clue. <laughs> and there's something cool about them doing it anyways. But I think there's also, I mean, like Pippin, we definitely see be very impulsive. Which, you know, will continue to be a factor in his character as we go forward. I believe he's also the youngest of them. He is the youngest, yeah. Is he even an adult in, in Hobbit senses? Um, I believe he is because I suppose it's worth clarifying for people that like in Hobbit culture, when you become an adult as a Hobbit is when you turn 33. I mean, Frodo is 50 when he leaves. Pippin's so the yeah, youngest. Yeah, I would assume... Pippin is like only like five or something years younger. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get a sense that he was like 17 years younger <laughs> than Frodo. Um, <laughs> that would be a little strange, yeah. Well, isn't this embarrassing? So, at the time that Pippin left the Shire to go on his grand adventure with Frodo and company, he was either 28 or 29 years old, making him a full two decades younger than Frodo. In other words, if Frodo had a child at the same time that Pippin was born, that child would be able to drink, by American standards, alcohol. Of course, in Europe, this child would start drinking at six because, you know, Europeans. You know, there's a funny line about how hobbits are the most uh, obnoxious and unruly in their 20s. And it really does feel like Pippin is kind of kind of like a 40 year old hobbit living like he's a 20 year old. <laughs> it's cute. Mary, you're right. We don't really get a sense of his character outside of the very beginning when he's really practical. Yes. Really savvy and has done all these things to get all the hobbits ready to go on this adventure. But after that, we don't really see too much from him, which is a bummer. Yeah. Some things are just going to get lost in the shuffle when you're talking about a world as vast as this with as many characters as these and all sorts of characters making quick appearances. To make a little side note, I don't know if you even remember this character, but there's the character of Gildor, who is the first yeah. elf that the hobbits run into. I loved this character so much, even though we only see him for maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 pages. There's just something about his presence that feels so like this is a full, complete character who has lived a full, complete life. We just happen to only be seeing 10 pages of his biography, basically. But we just get this huge sense that he has this vast, epic life that we will never see and i mean i, well, I he, go ahead he impacts the story quite a bit i mean like yeah. he tells other people that frodo and company are heading that way so like we constantly get his name brought back up because people are like oh yeah he told us yeah and then also he's the one who declares frodo to be an elf friend 
which has this sort of practical diplomatic effect that when he spreads the word, everyone knows. But also it seems to have this magical quality to it. When Frodo first meets Goldberry, Goldberry remarks, oh, you are an elf friend. I can tell by your voice and the look in your eye. So it's like almost this mystical quality to Gildor now, where in his declaration, he is, it's not just some like silly fake diploma that, that Frodo can now hang up in <laughs> Bag End, but it's an actual mystical thing that he will carry with him for the rest of time. So you have that in the middle of this story. I, I want to explore that, but there's also that happening every 20, 30, 40 pages. There's some new <laughs> element that's introduced and you're like, oh my God, this is so weird and strange and incredible and fantastic and I want to learn more. And so <laughs> Mary's going to, he can't compete. It's going to be hard. <laughs> the story has to be winnowed a little bit. Uh, and, you know, you got to kill some people off first before Mary can sort of <laughs> take on the starring role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man yeah there's so many things that are just dropped with zero explanation like not only just the amount of history like you get a surprising amount of like gondor's uh-huh history and things like you know aragorn's well aragorn himself is mentioned really early on in the story and set up for later but like denethor is set up for later on faramir gets mentioned and set up for later on like, there's a lot of these small things that just get dropped and set up. Aragorn, like, in Lothlorien, someone's like, hey, you haven't been here for, like, 80 years. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is not explained at all. <laughs> <laughs> I know why he's that old and how he's mm, able to keep living. Yeah. And why he doesn't look like an 80-year-old man. But, like, Tolkien's like, you'll find out. Wait for it. <laughs> and I suppose it's been sort of hinted at that, like... The men of, of Numenor are, like, used to be very long-lived and they've declined, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you can, like, put together the dots. But, yeah, there's just a lot that just kind of gets uh, thrown at you and you're yeah. expected to keep up. <laughs> Which I I appreciate because in some ways it allows you to choose what you want to be interested in. It's not mm -hmm. the narrative forcing it on, like, hey... You have to care about Luthien and Baron because they're going to come <laughs> up throughout this book. It's like, no, it's just a cute little story. Well, cute. Perhaps it's not the correct word, <laughs> but it happens on the side. If you want to pursue it and think about it and explore it, you can. Otherwise, you don't. But I do want to say the title that Aragorn adopts for himself because it truly is, I, I think, uh, a prime example of what we're talking about and things just being thrown at you and you just have to go along with it. So the title that he gives to himself is Elisar, the Elfstone, son of Erethorn of the house of Valandil, Isildur's heir, heir of Elendil. So it's like, Erethorn, who's that? House of Valandil, what's that? Isildur, I don't know. Elendil? Sure, whatever. So he's, he's like referring to like six different things. I don't know what any of this means, but sure, Aragorn, you sound pretty bad. There are a couple of moments with Aragorn where it's nice, uh, I guess in terms of his growth. So I'm going to keep coming back to him. He's my favorite like in the movies. So I, I do love him. It is but a shadow on a thought that you love. I cannot give you what you seek. <laughs> but like there's a couple of moments where like, you know, he's, like, just very shabby in the beginning. 
<laughs> like, he looks old and worn. Not, like, super old, but, like, you get the feeling he's pretty, like, decently middle-aged looking, you know? But there are moments, especially towards the end, as he begins to, like, take over their party, and then, like, when they're in the, the boats going, and he's seeing the statues of his ancestors, essentially, where, like, Frodo looks at him and notices that all of a sudden he looks like a different man, like a king, essentially. It's just very cool moments. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's this interesting moment of transformation of these different characters because Gandalf has similar moments to that where sometimes mm -hmm. he just looks so worn down and broken and then other times where when the moment calls for it or when he's in a place of respite, in some senses, his true self can come out. It's very explicit in the way that fairy tales are in that sense where characters, they go from one, you know, point A to point B and suddenly they literally have transformed. Right. It's the same kind of feeling there. But I do think it captures this feeling that's present throughout the books of like, you see the impact their environment has on them as characters. And I just think that's like something everyone can relate to, especially now. <laughs> kind of kills the tension because it's like oh okay well he's the king now but contained within itself it's a it's an interesting moment of just seeing how these characters adjust to whatever's happening around them and wherever they are it's good <laughs> it's good good <laughs> we haven't like even really talked about how the descriptions of some of these places that it's so oh this is so vivid if you thought the hobbit was landscape porn oh man this the fellowship takes it to a whole new level it's just gorgeous the way he describes the landscape and it really is again you just feel how much love and passion he poured into this world that he built in basically every single detail even yes yes even in the character of tom bombadil oh my god but but no like <laughs> getting outside of that argument you you do feel the the mysticism of this world the feeling that you are in some place magical isn't that what fantasy is supposed to do to mm -hmm. feel like it transports you that you are in somewhere new and exciting and magical if that's the goal then tolkien hit a freaking grand slam Casey's most controversial take of the night. <laughs> Tolkien did a really, really good job. The Fellowship of the Ring is really good. Who could have known? <laughs> uh. Yeah, I will. I will say, like, I I enjoy some of the descriptions. I think that where I really feel Tolkien <laughs> nerding out is obviously in how much like history and like. The number of times he's like, ah, yes, and we're going over here, and that's by this, which, like, uh -huh. we haven't talked about, like, in Lothlorien, there's a couple of stops they make. First at, like, this pool or, like, river thing. The, that, Nimrodal, like, I think. Is that what you're thinking of? No, I'm thinking about Gimli's, um, the thing that oh, reflects the mountains. Uh, something, I think it's Mirror Mirror, I think it's something like that. Mirror Mirror? <laughs> Casey here, interrupting the podcast. Despite Morgan's obvious skepticism, the name of the pool is in fact Miramir, or in the dwarfish language of Kuzdul, Keled Zaram. So take that, Morgan. Anyhow, but like, 
you know, stops and he talks about like, ah, this happened here, blah, blah, blah. And there's another stop at like a hill with like Frodo and uh, their elf guide, Haldir? Yes. Yeah, Haldir. And there's just these moments of like, this was where this happened. And there's just like so much history packed into every place they stop and look at. And like so much sense of like, yeah, time passing. That's where I think Tolkien's nerdery really gets to be. I think that Description-wise, I still don't fully vibe with the way he actually, like, describes physical landscapes. But that's a very personal thing. (laughs) On the upside, I have seen the movies, so I have just (laughs) ready-made images of what I think Middle-earth looks like ready to go. But yes, he does a really good job. There is a funny quality where where the narrative will just stop to go on some tangent about some historical fact or whatever. (laughs) And there's this really uncanny ability of every character to talk like a historian at times. (laughs) There's one scene that makes me laugh so much. Frodo has been stabbed and Aragorn is trying to not cure him, but at least stop the, the wound from getting worse. And he's specifically looking for this herb. Athelus? Athelus? I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't know either. He's, um... Pulling these these herbs out of his pouch to give them to Frodo to put on the wound. And he stops all of that to explain what the heck these leaves are and to give like a little <laughs> history lesson. I'll just read it here because why not? For this plant does not grow in the bare hills, but in the thickets away south of the road. I found it in the dark by the scent of its leaves. It is fortunate that I could find it for it is a healing plant that the men of the West brought to Middle Earth. Athelus, they named it, and it grows now sparsely. Imagine Frodo squirming in pain while this is happening. <laughs> grows now sparsely in only near places where they dwelt or camped of old, and it is not known in the north, except to some of those who wander in the wild. It has great virtues, but over such a wound as this, its healing powers may be small. Okay, Aragorn, thanks for that. Like, that wasn't really necessary to this. You could have just explained, <laughs> oh, it'll help. That's all you needed to say. You know, Tolkien can't help himself. No. But I do think for every silly moment that they explain what this herb is or what this river is or what this pool is, you get moments explain the history of Moria, the history of Lothlorien, the grandeur of the history that has occurred in this place. Mm -hmm. That in and of itself is remarkable. I know he pulled a lot of... He was clearly influenced by a lot of different sources, uh, both mythological and historical. He's not pulling this out of thin air. But the fact that he really creates a sense of Middle-earth history as its own independent thing is remarkable. And again, yes, I know. Oh, yeah. Oh, hot take. Casey, he thinks fellowship's great. (laughs) Whoop-dee-doo. Sorry. I didn't mean to dismiss oh, you. Oh, it's fine. It's I fine. just was like, you were so enthusiastic. And I was like, I love this. I love that our hot take is that this is good. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's a delight to read. It's like, even though it does get into the real world kind of aspects, like we mentioned how, how why is there this animosity between all these races when there is a common enemy that we need to take down? It goes to some dark places, metaphorically Mm. and literally. Worst joke of the year. You also just get a sense of how magical Middle-earth is. And I think that spills over into the real world. You get a sense of just how our own world 
is this amazing thing that we can delve into and experience. I love that. Yeah. I think the actual, the really magical moments in this book aren't necessarily the ones with actual magic. It is, you know, the magic of friendship (laughs) or the magic of, of places and time and how we as human beings or as, you know, sentient creatures have lasting effects on the world around us and in turn are like affected by the places around us. Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, that's the real magic of this book. It's not necessarily the fantastical elements, but the elements that of our own world that ring all the more amazing for seeing them reflected in this fantastical setting. That is a (laughs) great final note to, to leave off on. I am so excited to see how Two Towers lives up to this. Me too. <laughs> I, I have a feeling it, it won't, but we'll see. I'm also excited to see how Amazon ruins all of this with their new Lord of the Rings TV show. And my breath. Death. I suppose that's a topic for another time. <laughs> I love how we were going to leave off on this wonderful <laughs> note, and then you're like, Amazon, the bane of our existence, which like, fair, Amazon, Amazon is basically the Balrog of our time. And with that, <laughs> let's go kill some Balrogs, people. Until next time. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Hasta la vista. Um, bye-bye. Many spies have many eyes. One great to buy them, to buy them. One great to rule them all. One great